Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1,876. Today, we're riding with the Bentley Boys. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today, I'm back across the pond today. I seem to be hopping across that little body of water quite a bit in the last few months, and I'm with a very special returning guest by the name of Peter Grimsdale. Peter, welcome to Cars Yeah, or welcome back to Cars Yeah. Do you have it in gear, and are you ready to release the Bentley clutch? <laughs> Absolutely. It's great to be back. Well, thank you. We'll have some fun. Now, Last time you were here was February of 2020, and we were literally about one month away from all hell breaking loose and the world kind of going into chaos here. How are you doing, and how did the pandemic uh, affect you as an author? Did you just hunker down and stay home and write this great new book? Yeah, I think I think one of the things that appreciates it made me appreciate what I got. You know, I think those of us you know who are you know, who, whose jobs didn't go up in smoke. We felt very fortunate. You know, I mean, very little really changed for me. The big downside was that I couldn't get into any archives. Mm. And I'd gather all libraries. And um, so I had to be more resourceful about acquiring the material I still needed to require, acquire. But um, that was, a, yeah, it was, that was interesting in its own self. So by and large, I got through okay. And happily, none of us were ill. Well, I love to hear that. That's fantastic. I've had several authors on the show this year who, uh, same types of things, saying exactly what you said, mm -hmm. but they just kind of uh, hunkered down and uh, yep. in their bunkers and, and created their new books. Mm -hmm. You know, something interesting I learned from your book, and before I give you a, a, a proper introduction, was that uh, W.O. Bentley lost his wife, Leona, to the Spanish flu epidemic in 1918, which is somewhat yep. aligned with what we're talking about now, because that's horrific i don't know why they didn't call it a pandemic epidemic pandemic i guess it's all the mm. same it was tragic mm. uh, but i didn't know that about him yeah extraordinary i mean it's got to be said that probably more people died of spanish flu at the end of 1918 than had died in the whole of the first world war but it must have been a terrible loss to him now of course that generation they didn't talk about this stuff you know things like that happened you just got on with your life and actually just about everybody in this book in the story of the bentley boys was marked in some way by the war, war experience. Yeah, no doubt. Well, let me give you a short little introduction since you've been on the show before, and I'll remind uh, my listeners here, you can go back and find my first talk with Peter on the Cars Yow website. He was guest 1492. Uh, interesting time frame considering today he's 1876, a couple of years that had something to do with coming across the water and the, the new, old United States or new United States back then and the old British. But let me give you a proper, proper introduction. We're going to dive into this very, very cool new book. Peter Grimsdale is a British novelist and award-winning television producer who has made shows for the BBC, PBS, and Discovery Channels. As a lifelong car enthusiast, he has made in-depth films about the British and Japanese auto industries, profiles of Sir Sterling Moss, Alec Isogonis. Is, I always mess up his name. <laughs> Isogonis? Alec, is 
Alec Isigonis. Alec Isigonis uh, and many other automotive heroes. His first book, of course, we talked about when he was a guest before, uh, was titled High Performance, When British or when Britain Ruled the Roads, I should say. And that was produced by our friends at Simon & Schuster. And this latest book we're going to talk about today, which is very cool, Racing in the Dark, When the Bentley Boys Conquered Le Mans. So we'll be back in just a minute, but first a word from our valued sponsors. So keep the seatbelts on. We're with WO and we're with Peter Grimsdale today. We'll be right back. Summer's here, thank goodness, and that means long, hot days. Covercraft's UVS custom sunscreens are quality made and are incredibly fast and easy to use. Your UVS sunscreen is custom tailored for your vehicle. And the accordion design ensures easy storage. Not only do they protect your dash and interior for maximum protection while parking in the sun, sunscreens keep your vehicle's interior significantly cooler. They're durable and dependable for years of use. I have one for all my vehicles and I use them every time I park my car when I'm not going to put the cover on. You can choose from a variety of colors, including the original, their Premier Series, and Carhartt designs. Your sunscreen is manufactured with the quality and attention to detail that's been the standard for Covercraft since 1965. And they make really great gifts, too. Get your summer deal today if you use the code YEAH21, Y-E-A-H-21, at Covercraft.com. You'll get 10% off your Covercraft order. That's right. 10% off compliments of cars. Yeah. Simply use the code YEAH21 at checkout. Covercraft, protecting the things that move you. Get your own custom sunscreen today. Last year, I changed my collector car coverage to American Collectors Insurance. That's who now protects my Porsche Turbo, the one I call my Orange Crush. But did you know they also insure your valuable collections of automobilia and other collectibles? If you're like me, you've invested in a lot of cool collectibles over the years. Those items are valuable. And if you were to lose them in a theft or a fire, well, try to get your normal homeowner's insurance to pay you what they're worth. Good luck with that. American Collectors Insurance provides you with assurance and confidence that your collectibles are fully covered. They insure a lot of items, including automobilia, wine, baseball cards, books, figurines, die-cast models, model trains, glassware, sports memorabilia, toys, and a whole lot more. American Collectors Insurance, they've been protecting us enthusiasts since 1976. They provide you with an agreed value insurance policy backed by a long history of taking care of their clients. Give them a call today for your personal agreed value quote at 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866-224-9324. Tell them you're a friend of mine, Mark Rains here at Cars Yeah. American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. Automotive enthusiasts just like you and me. That's American Collectors Insurance. All right, Peter, so we're back. So let's dive a little deeper into the corner, as I like to say, and, sh and share more about this new book. Now, the way I like it beginning here, it was 1927 at Le Mans, and W.O. Bentley was peering into the dusk. Uh, his three cars that had led from the start were missing. So let's start with W.O. here and why racing was so important to him. We're going to talk a lot about him today because he was a fascinating character. And we'll talk about your book and what happened in the book in Le Mans as well. But let's start with W.O. What did you learn about him as you put this book together and crafted this story? Oh, God, there was so much. I mean, he he was an interesting, well, fascinating character because he, he came from quite a well-to-do background. And he went to a British public school, but couldn't wait to escape 
and above all else, wanted to become a railway apprentice. He went as a premium apprentice, which meant that his family paid for him to be an apprentice, in the locomotive sheds of the uh, Great Northern uh, Railway. And so he went up to Doncaster and he, he trained there. He was there for five years and he loved steam. He loved locomotives. And that was all he dreamt about, except he found motorcycles. Mm. And with motorcycles, it was a bit of a light bulb moment because he realized, I mean, maybe some of this is hindsight, but the way he, the way he wrote it afterwards, he said, you know, suddenly realized that there was no room for innovation, really, in the engine sheds. You know, they'd kind of done it with steam. You know, there was a few more things happened, but not a lot was going to happen. And so if he went on in that career, he would have to wait in line until somebody died before you moved up a step. You know, there was no... There was no kind of other move either side. And he realized that with a motorcycle, he bought a, his first motorcycle and rapidly realized there was a problem with it and fixed it and it innovated it. And he thought, hang on, this is what I can do. I can innovate here. And also the great thing about the motorcycle and indeed the car, which he got onto very quickly, was the freedom. He didn't, ha didn't have to run on rails, didn't have to run according to a, a schedule. You know, it, 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 was that, it was that sense of freedom. He tasted that freedom. And... He basically decided to pack it in with the railways, much to his parents' dismay. And he went to work for a cab company because London had just exploded with cabs. And he went to work for a cab company as a kind of general manager. And he was there for a couple of years. And then he went in with his brother and they bought a franchise, a car franchise, to sell a variety of cars, one of which was called the DFP. He thought the DFP was a promising little car, two-liter car, that could be developed for racing. So along the way, this is about 1910, 1911, thinking about how to innovate the car, he decided to go and see the, the manufacturers in France. They had a factory not far from Paris. And uh, Dorio, who was, the, who was a kind of el already an elder statesman of, of automotive engineering, he'd been with Panard and Levasseur right at the beginning. He uh, was kind of sympathetic to what Bentley was talking about in terms of trying to get a bit more power out of the engine. But while Bentley was there, he noticed on Dorio's desk uh, a paperweight. And it was a piston, but it was made of aluminium, aluminum to you. <laughs> and um, he picked this up and he, he said, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, a little, it, it had been made as a kind of like a Christmas kind of thing from, from one of his suppliers, the people who supplied his, his steel and iron pistons. Mm -hmm. Anyway, on the way back, he thought, you know what? An aluminium piston is a possibility. Now, I don't know how much you know about aluminium, aluminum, but it is obviously a lot lighter than steel and iron, but it melts at a lower temperature. So everybody thought, you're mad. You can't make, a, you can't put an aluminium piston in an engine. But what he also knew, and this is really where his engineering experience from the railway yards comes in, he knew about what happens with metal, which, which metals, you know, how metals behave mm -hmm. according to how hot they are. Yeah. And he realized, he knew that aluminium was very, also very conductive of heat. Mm. They didn't retain heat like, like iron and steel. And he kind of gambled that actually the aluminium piston would not melt because it would conduct the heat. And because it was so much lighter, the engine would go that much faster and it, and it wasn't going to melt. So it was a bit of a risk, but anyway, it paid off and he was right. And so when the First World War happened and suddenly the whole car industry was on halt, he decided to take his innovation to the Admiralty, the, the, the British Navy, who at that point had their own 
Air Force. I mean, the, the Air Forces, there were two there were two Air Forces in Britain throughout most of the war. One was the Navy Air Force and one was the Royal, Royal Army Air Corps. And anyway, luckily for him, the guy who met up with him said, yeah, this is a fantastic idea. We must put this into all our engines. So the result was that by 1918, Bentley had had got, got enormous experience developing improving and then designing his own aero engine and mm, um, yeah. i don't know how famous the red Baron. well i guess thanks to peanuts the red baron is quite famous oh sure yeah America, paul revere and the raiders there was a song about the red baron too i believe so baron <laughs> baron von richthofen the red baron yes was um famous german air ace and um bentley was very for he he liked to go out you know, into the war and see how the flyers were doing and spend time with the with the men who were repairing the engines and seeing you know talk, talk talking to the pilots and they they loved that and on one occasion while he was there the airbase they were in dunkirk was strafed uh by no less than the red baron oh gosh and and they had to hide in a canal neck deep in a canal so it was kind of kind of ironic that yeah from 1918 it was the, the, the plane that brought the red baron down eventually was powered by Bentley engine. Who'd have thought? Well, the the first Lamar race was what nineteen twenty three. Do I have my twenty three? Twenty three, yeah. and and I mm-hmm. understand Bentley, who loved speed, uh, entered a car. Yeah. So Bentley W O, I think you know the fact that he 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 he'd taken very seriously the fact that with an aero engine, if it stops, the pilot is dead. If a car engine stops, you pull to the side of the road and endurance became a very very important thing for him reliability endurance and he wanted his cars to to go for a long time which especially for british cars back then was you know something of a luxury to have that aspiration but basically what happened was he he, there was a remarkable man called john duff who was a an all-round sportsman and character and already had uh, raced bentley's at brooklands and was very interested in not so much in racing but in endurance breaking 24-hour records and that kind of thing. Anyway, he'd heard, he came in one day and he said, hey, there's going to be a 24-hour race in France. I want to go to this thing. Bentley says, 24-hour race, this is madness. The cars will never survive. What will happen to the electrics? You know, this is crazy. And Duff said, well, look, I'm going anyway, okay? So Bentley was like, okay, well, good luck. And um, come the Friday, he was like, oh, gosh, you know, I don't feel good about this. I don't feel good about this. And on Friday night, he decided he'd get on the train and go to Le Mans. Oh, wow. And turned up just as it was starting. And this was the very first Le Mans in 1923. And um, Bentley was the only British entrant. In fact, I think it was only five. I think they were, they were almost all French with a couple of Belgians. But basically, he was the only British entrant. And Bentley described it. He said, you know, I, I was I, I was very, very doubtful about this. But by dusk, I was completely hooked. <laughs> yeah. And um, anyway, Duff came uh, joint third, I think it was. Oh, okay. And that was amazing. Carl asked it. You know, he yeah. did fine. So it's like, okay, we're coming back. Well, they did come back <laughs> yeah. in 24 and they won the race, right? They came back in 24 and Duff won the race. And that yeah. was fantastic. But having won one race, it was just like they were kind of hooked then. Yeah. And, and Bentley kind of got sucked into something that was slightly in, it was kind of in over his head because the next two years, 25 and 26, he entered two cars and neither of them finished. Mm. And so he kind of, and by that time, his business, he's making great cars, but he's not making any money. 
Well, that's a good segue to my next thought here, is you're right. Mm-hmm. He, he did have a lot of business problems throughout the years, but it seemed mm-hmm. like these wealthy gentlemen would come along and kind of save him or pull him out of things. And of course, uh, we all know about the Benchley boys, and he, he kind mm-hmm. of put these guys together, two of which were very wealthy uh, gentlemen, in my understanding. Bornado? Is it Bernardo or Bernardo? Bernardo. Bernardo and, and Birkin, uh, two, and Birkin. two yeah. millionaires, basically, mm-hmm. who got together. And then Leslie mm-hmm. Pennell and Wally Hassan, who were made up this Bentley Boys thing. So let's fast forward into 27, the Bentley Boys, and, and mm-hmm. kind of where your your book starts to get into the meat of things. Well, the 1927 Lamar is an extraordinary... It's, it's a bit like it's the Bentley's creation myth, because... Three cars, three cars entered, and uh, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners will know, at dusk there was a massive, massive pileup at the White House corner, mm. Maison Blanche, and uh, in in all, I think eight cars were caught up in this crash. And although there had been terrible accidents in the uh, the early uh, road races, Paris, Madrid, in 1903, and so forth. This was the first kind of multi-car crash, really, in the history of motor racing, or British motor racing, uh, sorry, uh, European motor racing, at least. Anyway, happily, nobody was really badly injured, but all the Bentleys were involved in it. Mm. So for W. Bentley, this was a terrible, agonizing moment, really, because it was his last roll of the dice, really. He'd become pretty much addicted to to Le Mans by then, as people do, and uh, none of his cars None of his cars were showing up. It was just silence on the track at dusk. Can you imagine it? Because all because of this huge pileup, yeah. it was just silence. And then out of the gloom comes the sound of one Bentley moving rather slowly in one headlight, and it struggled to the pits. And, well, to cut a, a long and dazzling story short, went on, carried on in the race, and eventually won the race, yeah. which was an extraordinary thing. And actually, it put both Bentley and Le Mans on the map, because if the, ben- the Bentleys were lying one, first, second, and third at the time of the crash, and they would probably have cruised to an easy victory, and there'd be a couple of column inches, and that was it. Because at that time, nobody had heard of Le Mans. Le Mans was, you know, where was Le Mans? What was Le Mans? Nobody cared about it. That put him on the front page. So it made, it made Le Mans as well as it made Bentley. So that was really the beginning of the beginning, which we'll get to in a bit. Then there was an mm-hmm. end <laughs> with some yeah. guy named Royce that came along. Yeah. But uh, yeah, l- let's take a short break and thank our sponsors. We come back. I want to talk more about the book and maybe some challenges you had with the book of putting all sure. this history together and so forth. So sit tight and we'll be right back. What began as a charitable car show has grown into the world's greatest collector car auctions, raising over $133 million for charitable organizations to date. For nearly 50 years, automotive enthusiasts from all over the world have enjoyed the Barrett-Jackson Collector Car Auctions, and I'm a huge fan. Regarded as the barometer of the collector car industry, their auctions are world-class lifestyle events where thousands of the world's most sought-after unique and valuable automobiles cross the block in front of a global audience, in person, on TV, or streamed online. Barrett-Jackson produces the world's greatest collector car auctions in Scottsdale, Arizona, Palm Beach, Florida, Las Vegas, Nevada, and new for 2021, Houston, Texas. The excitement of Barrett-Jackson auctions is contagious, and a unique experience is not to be missed. And be sure to visit BarrettJackson.com today. 
Barrett-Jackson, the world's greatest collector car auctions. I've discovered Linkage. It's a new quarterly publication and website that covers the automotive market, driving, restoring, collecting, and discovering your passion for motor vehicles. Linkage is about experiences, opinions, and values. Linkage is an actual, informed, reasoned opinion based on first-hand experiences. A talented Linkage team covers the automotive world, the people who share your passion and mine, smart, considered, rational, and experienced opinions, ones you can learn from and grow. That includes our passion that drives auctions and the collector car market. So come with me and join us on this journey. And be sure to use the code CARSYEAH when you subscribe, and they'll give you $10 off. Boom! Linkage, geared for the automotive life. Subscribe today at LinkageMag.com. We talked earlier about W.O. having many challenges in his business, and these wealthy folks would come along and bail him out and and buy Mm -hmm. cars. There was one car, of course, uh, it was the Gurney Nutting-bodied Speed 6 that comes to mind Mm -hmm. that uh, one Mm -hmm. of those wealthy men I mentioned, uh, Barnado, had uh, specs. Is that the Blue Train Bentley? Is that that relationship? It's not quite, but it's it's close. So Wolf Bonato was probably the closest thing Britain ever had to a great Gatsby. He was a man who who burned through something like 900 pounds a week just in hospitality. That's about 40,000 pounds today. That's probably about $100,000 a week. Wow. Okay, (laughs) to put it in perspective. And Bonato was a very wealthy heir to a diamond fortune. His father had a self-made man had gone out to South Africa and um, struck diamonds. Bonato was very, very, very wealthy. And Bentley was great. Bentley and his brother were great at making cars, but they were terrible businessmen. And in the end, Bentley, by about 1925, Bentley realized that he, he just needed a proper benefactor. And so he went to see Bernardo and said, this is the situation. And Bernardo drove a very hard bargain. He said, I'll, I'll take over your company. We'll demote you to chief engineer. And um, my money men here by my side will you know, we'll steer your company for you. So it was a kind of a mixed blessing. But Bernardo then said, and I want to drive at Le Mans. Now, Bernardo had driven at Brooklands, and he was a real showman. And Bentley knew that in order to do Le Mans, you had to, you know, it had to be very measured, you had to be very steady, you had to conserve the car, all these things. But hey, what can you do? Your chairman has decided he wants to race. So Bentley fills the other two cars with seasoned professionals. But the only thing is that by the middle of the night, the only Bentley still going is Bernardo's car. But an amazing thing happens, which is that Bentley discovers that Bonato, his chairman, will take direction. He will do exactly what Bentley tells him to do. And it's a real surprise for everybody because, uh, including Bonato, Bonato didn't realize he had it in him, really. Not only did he win the 1928 Le Mans, he won in 1929 and 1930. <laughs> wow. and, and the hat trick, it wasn't until something like 1960 that a driver you know, managed to win Le Mans three times in succession. So an incredible thing happened. It's one of those examples where two people, such opposites, come together and create something bigger than either either of them could have done on their own. And that produced the Bentley heyday. No doubt. And of course, uh, much later, a guy named Sir Henry Royce came along when the company had to be sold. I think he was the highest bidder and he ended up with the with the brand. Is that how it worked? It was an extraordinary thing. So 
so always the fear was that Bernardo would just collect. He, Bernardo had so many different business interests that he'd kind of lose interest in Bentley. But by the summer of 1930, the Wall Street crash had happened, but it wasn't like, you know, it didn't lead to immediate economic collapse. It was like a kind of depth charge that was rumbling through the international financial system. And I probably, I mean, I, this is a controversy. People have different views about this. My view is that Bernardo, in the, by the summer of 1930, was thinking, I need to divest. I need to divest. We have no idea what's going around the corner. And he kind of, you know, he kind of done it with Bentley, and Bentley was still not making any money. And he, he, he kind of bailed it out, but he hadn't kind of set it going in a way that would, would self-sustain, which was true for lots of car companies at that time, especially at the high end. So it was expected that he put it on the market, basically, to see what would happen. And W.O. Bentley very much hoped that he'd be able to go in with Napier, who are another engineering company, who really needed his expertise and wanted to get back into car making. And it was a, it was a perfect marriage. But uh, it, just as it was about to go through and had to be ratified by a court, on the day of the ratification, another party stood up in court and said, I would like to make a counter bid. And um, basically, Rolls-Royce bought the company from under them, mm. much to their surprise. Now, the, the reason for Rolls-Royce buying Bentley is, is interesting because Rolls-Royce, but well, Rolls-Royce thought it had no equal. I mean, I think that it's certainly in Europe, you know, maybe Hispano Suiza, Bugatti not because it wasn't yet doing the Royale. But the only competitor was Bentley because by 1930, Bentley was building very big, big car, bigger and bigger cars, six and a half liter, eight liter car. Mm -hmm. His masterpiece was his eight liter Bentley. And it was better than Rolls's, Royce's Rolls Royce. So the only thing was to buy it up and shut it down. And that's what they did. Yeah. It was brutal. It was brutal. It was a brutal thing to do, but that's what they did. I mean, they, they reinvented Bentley two years later as the silent sports car. And they were fine cars built by Rolls Royce with a Bentley radiator on the front and, you know, in their own way were, you know, nice kind of you know, gen gentlemanly touring cars. Yes. They weren't the balls out amazing races yeah. that, that, that WO's, WO's Bentleys were. Yeah, it's a fascinating, fascinating story. Yeah. In putting this book together, Peter, what were some of your biggest obstacles and challenges that you ran into putting this whole story together? Because these are this is a dynamic story. This is one of these wonderful history stories for us automotive enthusiasts. But things get muddled with history, and stories get changed, and facts get dissolved, oh, yes. if you will. So how do you yeah. put this all back together? Well, the thing is, as with high performance, my agenda here is to kind of put the cars and the people in more of a landscape. So, mm -hmm. you know, there are many, many admirable books about Bentley and motor Bentley racing and Bentley at Le Mans. But what I wanted to do was look at the motivations behind the, the men and indeed the women behind, behind, the, behind the Bentley mystique. And also to widen the lens, if you were, and if, if you like, and say, what was the impact of the Edwardian era? What was the legacy of, of the, you know, the Industrial Revolution in Britain? How did the war impact on these guys? Because the war, the Great War, cast a very long shadow into the 1920s. And I wanted to spend quite a lot of time on, on that. But actually, this book happened slightly by accident. I was at a kind of history literary festival with my agent and my publisher and one or two other people. And I was there to talk about TV and books. I wasn't, it was nothing to do with cars, it was nothing to do with my own writing, really. They had a special kind of place set up for all the, all the contributors. And there was a three-liter Bentley in the corner. 
just on show. And I said to the guys I was with, you know, a car just like that crashed in the 1927 Le Mans, went on to win the race. And I was talking to a group of people who were not interested in cars, but they were fascinated by that story. And I thought, ah, this is a story you can tell to a wider constituency. Very much like what was done with Ford versus Ferrari. Well, I was just thinking a wonderful movie we could have out of this book. Based on, I think, probably more based on than, than, than is credited, a marvelous book called Go Like Hell. Yes. Which is all about all about that. that AJ's book, uh, yeah. Yeah, which is a superb book. And in many ways for me is one of those I, I have up there as an example of how to do it. So having kind of thought, oh, this could be a book. I then I, did, I wrote a page, you know, like this is how it is to my my book agent who knows nothing about cars at all. And he said, "Oh yeah, we can sell this." So I kind of like was it was a nice, wonderful thing to have happen. But it's just like, "Yep, they want to do this book." So it's just like, "Wow, Uh-oh. okay, careful what you wish <laughs> <Okay>. for." <laughs> yeah, exactly. But as it turned out, because a number of things came good, so it is a well told story in lots of ways. But there's always new stuff. There's always new stuff. And and you mentioned the Spanish flu. One of the great Bentley racing drivers was a guy called Dudley Benjafield. In fact, he was one of the team that, that is salvaged the car and won the 1927 Le Mans. Now, Dudley Benjafield was a qualified bacteriologist. And during his great war, he was in Alexandria, in the, in, in the Middle East, in Palestine, as an army doctor, basically dealing with casualties of Spanish flu. He developed a vaccine to help chronic sufferers, alleviate chronic sufferers, save quite a few lives, no question about that. Never talked about this again, the way they did. They come home from the war, never discussed again. As it turns out, he wrote this He wrote this up for the British Medical Journal in 1919. And I, I found the article and I thought, That's, this is pretty interesting, but I know nothing about medicine or whatever. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I, I got a, a friend of my son who's a biochemist, PhD, and she looked into it for me. She said, you know, this is amazing. Do you know that Benji's article in 1919 was still being quoted in medical journals in 2003. You wow. know, he was a real trailblazer. So it's things like that that you will find in my book that you perhaps won't find in other Bentley books. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to kind of paint in the whole guy. You know, that's what I try and do as far as possible. You mentioned uh, women as well. And I've had, gosh, I think over 300 women in the automotive sector on this show so far. So Mm. uh, Mrs. Victor Bruce uh, set a little bit of a record driving a 4.5 liter Bentley, right? Remarkable woman. She'd already won the ladies prize for the Monte Carlo rally. She'd set records with her husband going around Montlhery, which is the bank circuit outside Paris, which was faster than Brooklyn's. And she just basically approached W.O. and said, I want to I want to do the 24-hour record of Montgomery. I want to try and do 100 miles an hour for 24 hours. You you have the only car capable of doing it. Could I borrow one, please? Can I borrow one? And he one? was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, sure. And she, uh, she went and did it. And do you know what? She'd never driven that car. She'd never driven a four-and-a-half-liter. She'd never driven a Bentley before she turned up at the track. Wow. And she'd never driven a car that was much bigger than two and a half liters before. And she did the whole 24 hours, you know, with, with brakes for a cup of tea, but basically did the whole 24 <laughs> breaks, hours. Breaks remarkable, remarkable woman. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Really yeah. remarkable. Fascinating, fascinating. When you think about that race that your book surrounds the story with, any of those are all those cars still existent today? Oh, loads of them. Yeah. I mean, old number seven, which is the most famous Bentley of the 1920s, disappeared. It was somebody somebody wrote it off in the 1930s. But a lot of them are still around. Bernardo's car, old number one, uh, which was the uh, six-liter six Bentley, which won 
won them on twice as he you know, driven by him that led his funeral cortege yeah it's still very much around as are a lot of these cars yeah yeah lovingly preserved mm-hmm. i think it's uh is it chip connor that has that car could well be. Yeah. Could well be. Yeah. He talked about that car being a guest. He yeah. was a guest here on Cars. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm. And of course, uh, a couple of years ago at the Quail, uh, they had a huge collection of those old Bentleys uh, yeah. at the Quail, uh, which was mm-hmm. marvelous to see all those cars together. I was shocked mm. at how many were there. And of course, we've seen them on the lawn at Pebble as well. Uh, oh, yes. Is, absolutely. Yeah, is absolutely yeah. wonderful. Uh, you know, when I talk about getting into my guest heads, uh, which I've done in the past here, yeah. is there one? One Bentley in particular, uh, if I were to say, Peter, you are manifest tomorrow as a Bentley. You're going to turn into mm-hmm. one of the boy mm-hmm. Bentley boys' cars. Is there one that really stands out for you, or is it more the more the people? Oh God, I think it, I think it's much more the people. Um, I mean, I suppose the, the the one the one of my favorite characters of of, of all the, the so called Bentley boys, the real Bentley boys, they went the posh the posh rich boys they were they were the, the mechanics and apprentices who came to work for wo mm-hmm. and leslie pennell uh was you know le- left school went to work for them was sweeping the floor in the showroom and kind of dreaming that one day you know maybe god there was a photograph on the wall of, of bentley went before the war competing in the in in the tt and he was just like thinking God, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe just one day, one day. Well, in 1922, he was sitting beside W.O. Bentley <laughs> as his riding mechanic in the 1922 TT. And I love the way that both him and Wally Hassan, both, you know, working class boys from the East End of London, had amazing, amazing careers that you know, would never have happened had they not jo- joined a place at Bentley Motors. And the thing about W.O. was, he was a man of few words. He expressed very little emotion. He could never really celebrate. He was he was very, very shut down guy. But he was a fantastic manager and motivator of people. And Wally Hassan, if you think about it, he went there as an apprentice, age 16. So he was involved in Le Mans in the 20s. He went to work for ERA in the 30s at Brooklands. He joined Jaguar in the 1940s and helped design the XK. He went to Coventry Climax and developed a fire pump engine that went into the Cooper and Lotus and took, took, that took those two, uh, two world champion Formula One uh, supremacy. Uh, he then he rejoined Jaguar when Coventry Climax was bought by Jaguar and uh, helped design the, uh, the V12 that mm-hmm. went to Le Mans in 1990. So Wally Hassan was involved in motor racing in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. Holy cow. And I don't think there is anybody else in the history of motor racing who has that long an involvement. That's incredible. Now, Mm -hmm. after after, uh, Bentley was sold, did he go, W.O. go on to Lagonda? Yeah, so he was handcuffed to Rolls-Royce for five years. That was part of the deal because he, his contract with, with the original company stipulated that he was he was an asset of the company. So he was totally, totally in, in their Ooh, control. That had they to didn't be really, a little ugly. <laughs> yeah, they didn't use him. They, they, they kept him well away from the design office, mm-hmm. which is weird. It's very weird and very British in a kind of very negative way. But anyway, he Bentley was such a gentleman. He, he managed to get on with everybody. And they actually asked him if he'd like a new contract, and they offered him more money, stay with Rolls-Royce. But he'd, um, no, he didn't. He went to Lagonda and went back to Le Mans, went back to Le Mans with Lagonda at the end of the 30s. And then during the war, 
designed or oversaw the design of the uh, six-cylinder engine, uh, six-cylinder twin-cam engine for, for, for Lagonda, which eventually went into the Aston Martins. There you go. went back to Le Mans. And Carroll Shelby won Le Mans. <laughs> Carroll Shelby won Le Mans, basically an Aston Martin that had kind of quite a bit of W. Bentley DNA in the engine. Yeah, I love it. You know, before I let you go today, is there anything we didn't touch on? I don't want to give the whole book away, obviously, because I want people to get their hands on this. It's a marvelous read. Is there anything else you want to touch on about W.O., about that particular race or the Bentley boys? Well, i tell you a really interesting thing, which I discovered, which is that their adversary in 28, 29 was, was the Stutz. Okay. Mm, okay. But the Stutz was entered by an amazing character called Charles Wayman. And Charles Wayman was a half Haitian American who had, become, had come to France and been a flyer and then was an aircraft designer and then was a car body designer. And he, the Wayman, Wayman bodywork basically was a, was, was a transformative piece of coachwork, free steel. You know, this was like how to make wooden fabric bodies work and not squeak. And <laughs> um, Wayman pioneered that. Wayman had a this thriving coach building business in France and, in, uh, and also there were satellites in Britain and elsewhere. And I'm sure pre, pre-pressed steel, the same is true in America. And Charles Wayne was such an interesting character, and I cannot find any information about him yet. And I'm, I'm kind of curious now, so I'm going to have to go, go after him. So the th- extraordinary thing about writing these books is that li- they leave you with a taste for more. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah. But that was, that, was, that was one like kind of left-field thing. But it was all interesting because the Stutz is an incredible car. I didn't spend a lot of time talking about it because that's a whole other story. Sure. But it was just so interesting that how it had come to Le Mans was via this guy, Wayman. Well, maybe that's the next book we'll be seeing from Peter Grimsdale. The book is titled Racing in the Dark, When the Bentley Boys Conquered Le Mans by our friends at Simon & Schuster. Uh, I'll put a link to where you can get your hands on a copy. This has got to be sitting on your automotive library shelf because it's very, very worthy. You did a marvelous job. Now, before I let you go, is there maybe a parting piece of wisdom, some words of wisdom or a mantra or something you'd like to, to share with our listeners today, Peter? I think one of the things that I'm interested in is the way that, you know, cars are so much an expression of the character of the people who design them. I spent a lot of time looking at w, D- William Lyons for Jaguar, and I, I recently had to uh, write a piece about, uh, for Motorsport magazine, they asked me to write a piece about the six, for the 60th anniversary of the E-Type. And I was thinking about what the E-Type was like what made the E-Type so extraordinary in 1961 was it completely uncompromised by in design. Nobody rounded anything off. It was extreme. And most of Lyons' designs were extreme, you know? He had this expression of extreme, you know, he just really, really wanted to push the envelope. And Alec Isagonis, who's another great hero of mine, who designed the Mini, he was the complete opposite. You know, he was all about utilitarian mass use of space. And these were all the, these these qualities were all to do with their upbringings and their backgrounds. Uh, it's so interesting how W. Bentley's cars, as Ettore Bugatti said, you know, they're like they're like lorries, they're like trucks. You know, they were built like they're they're, they're built like battleships. They're built like railway engines. You know, yes. Well, um, and I think the DNA, the engineering DNA, is so interesting of cars. The way it's it's it, in many ways it's an expression of the individuals, char- character of the individuals who pioneered them. 
Oh, absolutely. You think about where we all started or where he started. W.O. was back with trains. So there you yeah. his two things were like big, giant trains. Well, again, uh, listeners, you can find everything Peter's talked about on our show notes page here on the Cars Yeah website. Just go type in Peter Grimsdale. You'll find both of his shows there. So if you missed my first talk with Peter about his previous book and you got to get your hands on that, if you don't already have a copy, uh, you'll find it right there on the Cars Yeah website. Is there a way for people to follow along with you, Peter? Do you play in the social media world or you just keep to yourself and write books <laughs> yeah i'm on twitter i'm on twitter i should be on more so I, I i can be found on twitter okay great i'll put a link to that as well i'm very happy to hear from any readers i'm very willing to to engage with anybody out there please do reach out if you want to talk to peter but mostly get your hands on this book because you're gonna love it it's a great read great summer read now that we're all let out of lockdown you guys are somewhat free now right is that right Somewhat. Somewhat. Yeah, somewhat. Yeah, somewhat. Never say never. <laughs> never say, yeah, yeah, we don't want to go back to where we were. Yeah, if you're going to get on an airplane and go somewhere to a car event, get yourself a copy of this book and enjoy it. Peter, hey, thanks for coming back and being a, a two-peter. Maybe you'll come back and be a three-peter sometime in the future with the next book. Uh, I want to thank you for sharing this new book with us today. It's really, really marvelous. Uh, you're always a joy to talk to. Until you and I talk again, my friend, I'll see you down the road. Thank you. Thank you. Did you know that less than 3% of all automotive technicians in the United States are women? You may not be surprised, but you should be concerned because our country is facing a massive technician shortage right now. Skilled, qualified techs are in high demand, and we need young women and men to consider these careers as a viable path to a fulfilling life. I've interviewed hundreds of women in the automotive sector here on Cars Yeah, and I know that women make great techs. That's why I support the nonprofit TechForce Foundation and its Women Techs Rock initiative to ensure women see themselves in the profession, the industry, and the workforce. Learn more at techforce.org today. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.